you are listening to the sermon podcast from Bethel Covenant Church. We're an evangelical covenant congregation outside Ellsworth, Wisconsin. You can learn more about us at BethelCov.org. Thanks for listening. So we're doing something a little different here at Bethel for the next few weeks. We're going to be going through the Gospel of Matthew together. We're going to be walking through... um, uh, this gospel to get an idea of, of really the whole story of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, and what it means for us. And as I was, uh, and I don't know if you guys watched, we shared a video on Facebook that talks about what a gospel is. Um, <clears throat> and it's a great video. I encourage you to take a look and, and watch it sometimes. But one of the best ways that I've ever heard, and I can't remember if it's in this video or not, but one of the best ways that I've ever heard a a gospel described, the best analogies I've ever heard, is that it's kind of like, like a quilt. Um, it's less like a, um, anything else. It's kind of like a quilt. And so I was, I was thinking about quilts, and there's this one quilt that um, has always had a special place in my heart. So I want to show it to you. Um, so you, you might not be able to see it too good back there, but this quilt belongs to uh, my wife, Erin. And it's almost like she planned this, but she's not up here to hear about this, so I'm safe. Um, but... So this quilt is one of the first ways I got to know uh, who my, my wife was. So we had been dating for, we had known each other for about four months. We'd been dating for a few uh, weeks. And I went to her parents' house over in Red Wing. Um, and I saw this quilt. And if, if you look closely, you'll notice it's a t-shirt quilt. So each square on this quilt is a different t-shirt that Erin wore when she was in high school. And so we met in college, and so I remember her mom showed me all kinds of things when I came to visit her house, um, but this was one of them. She showed me some videos of Aaron and marching band and, and this quilt, and if you look, each square represents a different thing that was important to Aaron in her life. So she was a counselor at Lake Beauty Bible Camp. Um, she was involved in this thing called Interact in Red Wing. I'm not 100% sure what it is, but it was really important to her at the time. Um, <laughs> And there, there are a lot of things on here. This is, you know, her senior pride. Uh, you'll notice there are a lot of advertisements for uh, symbol manufacturers. That's what this is. Erin uh, was uh, in the marching band growing up. And so uh, she sat down at some point when she was a, a high schooler and, and put this together. She took all these shirts that she used to wear that were the most uh, important defining things of her time in high school, and she put them on a shirt. She, was, she did pit orchestra in Les Mis when Red Wing did uh, Les Mis. So I'll just put it right here. Um, <clears throat> so you can, you can come look at it later. It's, it's really cool. It's, it's been a while since it was made, it uh, turns out. And it's funny when Aaron, it actually lives at Aaron's mom's house, and so she brought it so I could show you guys today. And it doesn't look quite as bright as I remember it looking uh, that first time. But if you look at this quilt, you'll get to know a lot about who uh, Aaron was, during a very specific period of time in her life, uh, her four years of high school. And in this quilt, it says a lot about the kind of person who made it. Uh, It says a lot about who that that Aaron was. And it also probably says a lot that this quilt isn't at our house, um, but it's at Aaron's, Aaron's mom's house. And I love this because it's a way of kind of telling her story for this really narrow snapshot of time and just from this really narrow angle. And when you look at this shirt, you get an idea of who Aaron, uh, how Aaron thought of who she was uh, in high school and what, what was important to her. Um, and you can tell by what's on here. 
and, and maybe some of the, the stories from her life that didn't uh, make it on, on the quilt as well. Um, and as I was looking at this quilt and thinking about, quilt, there we go, Matthew 1, yep, thinking about the gospel, I started to think, you know, I don't think Aaron's the only one that makes um, quilts like this. I think we all uh, do this just in different ways, right? So some of us make scrapbooks. You know, my mother-in-law loves to make scrapbooks. I remember uh, our niece was the first grandkid in the family, and she has like 11 scrapbooks <laughs> because every six months was worth documenting. Um, but we all try and tell our, tell our own our own stories. And the question that I've been thinking about is, you know, what do you include in the story about yourself that you tell others? Uh, what makes the quilt and what doesn't? Because I think we all um, make quilts. And you might not uh, make a scrapbook or a quilt, but uh, you might use Facebook to do this. Uh, you post about uh, certain kinds of things to create this image for others. This is who am. Uh, we make quilts in how we introduce ourselves to others. Uh, you know, what's the first thing you say? Well, I grew up here and my parents are so-and-so, or do you say, this is what my job is, or this is what I'm from? We're all creating this identity for others to see. Uh, we're all making a quilt that explains ourselves to others. And, and there are parts of our past that we are really happy to include on our quilt, right? Uh, there are, you know, we all have our own interact t-shirts. The things that we want people to know is, is who we are. Um, we have happy memories or, or personal successes, good times, but there are also parts of our lives that we don't always want to include on, on our quilt. You know, people that have hurt us or people that we've hurt, mistakes that we've made or, or tragedies that we face. And I think we all wrestle a little bit with what do we share with others? What do we keep to ourselves? Um, what do we include in our life story? And what do we try and keep as far away from it as possible? And so as I mentioned today, um, we're, we're looking at this question as we approach the, the gospel of Matthew. What do we do with the stuff that happens in, in our life? And and what's interesting about, about Matthew and about all the Gospels is they're engaged in their own kind of quilt making. Um, they're making decisions about what parts of Jesus' story to tell and how to tell that, that story. Because uh, we believe that, uh, and, and almost everybody agrees, Christians and non-Christians believe that uh, about 2,000 years ago, uh, somebody named Jesus walked the earth, and he taught people, and this is all the stuff that pretty much everybody can agree on, uh, that he was executed by the Roman Empire. Um, and as Christians, of course, we believe uh, that not only was he killed by the Roman Empire, he also rose again from the dead. And, and if you think about that, that, that true thing, that there really was a literal person named Jesus who ate and drank and walked the earth, um, people probably had hundreds and thousands of stories of their experiences with him. So Jesus, we believe Jesus walked the earth uh, and did ministry for three years. And during those three years, he performed miracles, he taught people, uh, he talked to people, he met all kinds of crazy people, he got in fights with people and, and disagreements with people. And so when um, the people that wrote our, our four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when they sat down to tell the story of Jesus, they probably had hundreds or 
thousands of things that eyewitnesses had seen Jesus do or heard uh, him say. And so what they had to do, what Matthew had to do, our friend, our friend Matthew, is he had to sit down and take all of these stories, all these miracles, all these examples, all these teachings, because Jesus was a traveling teacher, right? So every time he went to a new town, he preached probably roughly the same thing, but probably not always in the exact same way. And so our, our gospel writer, Matthew, he had to sit down, and, and what he did is he, he made a quilt uh, out of those stories. He said, okay, this is something that happened to Jesus, and I think if I want to explain the most important thing about Jesus, this uh, ought, to go, ought to go first. And, and this story, the true story that happened to Jesus, it ought to flow into that next thing. And that's why if you've ever sat down and read the Gospels, that's why we have four of them. Uh, because there are four different perspectives and four different um, important points that each Gospel is trying to make about who Jesus is. Four different angles that matter. And so... If you've ever read through the Gospels, you've noticed that sometimes Jesus' teaching sounds like this, and sometimes it's pretty much the same, but a little bit different. Well, remember, Jesus probably preached that sermon a hundred times. <laughs> and maybe John thought this version of it uh, fit better in with the part of Jesus that he was trying to shed light on, and Matthew thought this version of it uh, shed more light on the part that he was trying to shine light on. So this is all to say um, that as we read through Matthew together, um, I kind of have two tips, two things to remember whenever you're reading any of the Gospels, but especially Matthew, because that's what we're, we're reading together. So these are, these are your two tips. One, everything is there on purpose. Um, nothing included in any of the Gospels is put there because somebody felt like they had to or because it seemed like a nice story and they just wanted to stick it in there somewhere. Uh, everything that you read in Matthew and the other Gospels, they're put very intentionally in that place on purpose. There's a reason. And, and that reason has to do with point number two. Every story about Jesus, every miracle, every teaching that's included in Matthew or the other Gospels is there to make a claim. Uh, the author is trying to say something about who Jesus is and what his life means. Uh, so as you're reading, these are just two good tips. As you're reading through it with us this, these next few months, uh, be looking for that. Um, everything is there on purpose, and it's told in this order on purpose, and everything's making a claim. Because remember, when Matthew got done writing his gospel, he left a pile of really good, interesting, cool stories about Jesus on the floor. He left a pile of stuff because he only had limited space. He had to be really intentional about what was included in this gospel um, to explain uh, how Jesus' life impacted us. Um, so as you're reading, remember those two facts. I think that'll, that'll help you a lot. So everything in Matthew has a purpose, and everything is trying to make a claim about who God is, uh, about who Jesus is, and about who we are if we believe uh, this to be true. Uh, so everything's here for a purpose. Everything makes a claim. So let's take a look at our passage. Um, you've got it in front of you. I'm not going to put it up on the screen. And I'm going to do my best to go through it relatively quickly. Um, <clears throat> so, so here goes. Matthew 1, 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. 
Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminimadab, Amminimadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of King David, David. He was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Okay. <laughs> Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah. And his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. And I, thank you. But we're not done yet. That's the crazy thing. <laughs> After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatiel. Sheatiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Elakim. Elakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathen. Mathen, the father of Jacob. And Jacob is the father of Joseph, who is the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now, I know I just told you everything is in Matthew for a reason, but if you've ever tried to read through the Gospels, I'll bet you skipped over this part. I know I do almost every single time. Because why does it need to start with the phone book, you know? Uh, and it reads just like that. And I think most of us, we just skip right over it or, or we tune out completely. But remember, um, lists like this, right? They're here for, for a reason. It's not here by accident. And they're here to make a claim about who Jesus is. And so, and again, right, Matthew decided, he sat down and said, this is how I want to start this uh, explanation of who Jesus was. I want to start with with this. We've got to take that into account. We've got to take it seriously. The other Gospels don't all start with the genealogy like this. Uh, it's put right there at the very beginning on purpose. And so uh, to understand this, I just want to point out three things that um, we don't always notice when we skip over this, this genealogy. Three little things. There's actually a lot of amazing, interesting stuff in here if you ever want to dig into it. But I just want to point out these three things. First of all, uh, our genealogy, and it'll help you if you've got it right in front of you, our genealogy goes out of its way uh, to point out three key moments in the history of Jesus and his people. And those three key moments have to do with somebody named Abraham, somebody named David, and something called the exile. Uh, these three uh, moments are included, and they're intended basically to briefly retell the whole story of the Old Testament. So Matthew starts his book, and he says, uh, the story of Jesus, it has something to do with Abraham. Uh, and if you need to know anything about Abraham, uh, the only thing you really need to know is that God encountered Abraham and promised him something. He promised Abraham that he would make him into a great nation and that he would use that nation to bless the whole world. Okay, so if you're a, a Jew reading, um, reading Matthew for the first time, if you're Jesus, Jesus knew this story too. Uh, you know that Abraham is the guy that God promised. And as a Jewish person, as an Israelite, you're a descendant of Abraham. Okay, so God promises Abraham that he'll bless the whole world through him and the nation that'll come out of him. The second name on that list is David. If you grew up in this time, 
The, only, the thing you know about David is David is the best king that that nation ever had. So God promised Abraham he'd make a nation out of him. He did. And David is the best king they ever had in, in that nation. You look back to the good old days of when David was on the throne, and you hope that maybe one day somebody, even just a tenth as cool as David, might be the king of God's people. Um, and things went really well when David was king. Uh, part of Abraham, that promise that God made to Abraham, it came true in David. When David ruled Israel, it was a great nation, and it actually blessed all the nations on, on earth. Uh, but the problem was that it didn't last very long um, because uh, the people that came after David and even David himself, they uh, fell victim to uh, human evil, this thing in church we call sin. Uh, they, did, they did bad things that, that hurt people. They turned their back on God. Uh, and this great, awesome kingdom that God promised, it, it didn't last. Um, it ends, right, with, with the exile. That was the next uh, key moment that um, <clears throat> Matthew wanted you to pay attention to. The exile um, is about what happened after David was king. How David sinned and turned away from God and how the people that followed him turned away from God over and over again. And it led to the great nation that God had promised Abraham that was going to bless the whole world. It led to other nations coming in and destroying it and scattering all of Abraham's descendants, all of God's people uh, all over the place. And this uh, period of time is called the exile. And so, uh, and this is, this is a way of telling the whole story of the Old Testament. And so if you take anything away um, from what Matthew's trying to say here, he's capturing the story of the Old Testament. The Old Testament story goes like this. God promises that he'll bless the world through Abraham. It seems to go pretty good for a very short period of time, and then it all falls apart. And the Old Testament ends in that. It ends with everything having fallen apart. And if you grew up reading the story, um, you hope that one day God might come and right the ship, that God might come and undo and fix all that terrible stuff that has happened in the past. Uh, the story of the Hebrew scriptures, the Jesus's Bible, um, the people that read Matthew, their Bible, it ends, it ends kind of unfinished. It ends with the hope that one day the promise that God made Abraham way back then will actually come true. The, the first readers of Matthew, that story was in their bones. Um, it was a, a bigger story in their lives than any story that we hold on to today. Any history that we remember, it defined their identity that one day God might come and save the day. And by including it here, Matthew is making a claim. He's claiming that Jesus, he fits into this story somehow. Uh, he fits in with people like Abraham and David and the story of the exile. Um, and so the second thing, that's the first thing I want you to notice. The second thing you should notice um, there are three key moments, and there are um, four stories to forget. Uh, there are four names mentioned in this genealogy that most people um, would probably rather not have been in here at all. Um, the second thing we should pay attention to is these, these four names in the list, and, and these are the kinds of people that are never uh, hardly ever included in ancient genealogies. Um, and in this case, it's, it's four women. Uh, when you wrote a genealogy back in Jesus' day, you, you didn't bother to include the names of women. There was no reason to. Uh, and, and beyond that, uh, these are four very specific women. Um, you'll notice them in verse 3. There's a woman named Tamar. Verse 5, there's a woman named Rahab. Verse uh, 5 again, there's a woman named Ruth. And verse 6, 
uh, there's somebody that's referred to as Uriah's wife. Um, and if you know uh, who that is, you know that uh, the more common name for Uriah's wife is Bathsheba. So you've got Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. And their inclusion is strange uh, because it's this long list of men. Uh, and for some reason, uh, there are these four women and they stick out like a sore thumb. Like they, if you were reading this book as an early Jew, you'd be like, what's the deal with that? You'd notice it right away. Uh, they all represent a story from, and beyond being women, um, each of these women, they represent a story from Israel's past that most people uh, would probably rather forget. Uh, that most people would probably rather not shine a big spotlight on. And we're not going to go into to all the details of these stories, but Tamar is a woman that has to trick uh, one of the patriarchs into doing the right thing by her. Uh, she has to trick him uh, so that she can get out of this difficult situation that she, he's put her in. That's Tamar. Uh, Rahab is a foreigner. She's not from Abraham's line. And she's also a, a prostitute <laughs> that winds up helping God's people. That's Rahab. Uh, Ruth is another foreigner, not somebody from Israel's or from Abraham's line. Another foreigner whose love for her Israelite mother-in-law uh, is painted in Scripture as one of the best examples of what God's faithful love looks like in all the Old Testament. Uh, next is Uriah's wife, better known as Bathsheba. Uh, she's a woman who, uh, without going into the whole story, uh, her husband was murdered by King David. <laughs> four women uh, represent times that God worked through unexpected people in spite of the great sin of others to keep his promise to Abraham. So so these four women remind us that the Bible is not a story of perfect heroes who always do the right thing, uh, but of broken and imperfect, incomplete people who God uses anyway to keep his promises. And so, so Matthew is making a claim, right? He's claiming that Jesus fits into the story of these four women as well. That something core about who Jesus is and what he does on earth and on the cross and in the empty tomb has to do with these four women, and you better not forget about them. So, so Matthew traces uh, Jesus' genealogy this way. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to gather up this whole story, the whole story of God's promise and his work in unexpected ways in, in people like Abraham, but also through people like, like Rahab. And he's, what he's doing is he's trying to pull everything together and, and hold it up, all the heroes and the victories and the blessings all the good stuff that you'd want to throw on the quilt and all the stuff that people might rather you leave off of it. Uh, the failures and the sins and the hurt people. And he holds it all up and he stitches it together to say one thing. Uh, because these three moments and these four stories to forget, they add up to one thing. And stay with me here. We're not going to get too weird. Uh, they add up to the number seven. Um, because I want you to notice just, just one more thing. Um, if you've read the Bible for very long, you know that in Scripture, the number seven is really important. Uh, it, it shows up everywhere. Um, it's the number of days that God used to make the world, right? So in the very first page of the Bible is the number seven a bunch of times. Uh, it's the key to just about every uh, Jewish festival that they celebrated has to do with the number seven. And if you look closely all over Scripture, it's just over, there, over and over again, number seven. And this isn't a conspiracy theory, <laughs> Uh, but, it, but it's there. And the reason it's there, it's sort of like uh, the Old Testament's version of like a nice round number. Uh, that's kind of the one way to put it. You know, it, in the Old Testament, the number seven means completion. 
It means perfect. It means finished. So like if you have a set of seven pies, you have enough pies. <laughs> if you have a set of, of seven things, you have a full set. If you have six, that's incomplete. Seven is, is full. And so when the Bible says that there's seven of something, it, it always connects to this idea of completion, of finishedness, of perfection. And so Matthew intentionally hides this number uh, here in this list of names. Because you might have noticed in verse 17, the very bottom of your passage, it says, thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. So um, hold on to your hats because we're going to do a little math. And one of the reasons I'm a pastor is because I'm not so good at math, but we're going to try. Um, what is 14 divided by 2? Seven. Thank you. Uh, and so if you have three 14s, how many sevens do you have? Six. There's some good math people in here. Yeah, you have three pairs of sevens. So there's two sevens between Abraham and David, two sevens between David and the exile, and two sevens between the exile and, and Jesus. And so you've got six sevens, and the very next name, the start of the next like, group of sevens, if there was going to be another group of sevens, is Jesus. So six sevens, and then what do you need? If you've got six of something, you've got to have one more. So Jesus actually starts off the one more group. And so Matthew is doing something really intentional and, and totally on purpose in tracing his genealogy like this. Matthew is saying that Jesus is not just a part of the story. What he's saying is that Jesus uh, takes all that stuff up. He doesn't continue it on. He actually brings the conclusion he brings the completeness to this long story of God's people. Uh, if you were an early reader of Matthew and you hadn't you'd heard maybe about Jesus and you started reading this passage and you were a little skeptical, when you got to this point, uh, you might just throw it right on the ground. Because what Matthew is saying is extreme. He's, he's saying not only is Jesus like uh, the heroes of your faith, like Abraham and David. Not only is Jesus a part of this story, he's greater and bigger than this story. And not only that, he's the culmination of this whole story. He's the answer to the Old Testament's question. He's the fulfillment uh, of what all these things have been leading up to. So this is what Matthew's claim is. This is what Matthew's trying to say by including this. He takes the, the good of their history, the promise that God has made that they're hoping will be uh, made true, right? He takes the, the hard stuff of their history, the exile, the things that people have done that they really shouldn't have done, the wrong stuff that you would never, ever put in that quilt. And rather than take uh, the good stuff and leave the other stuff out, uh, rather than just focus on, on the bad stuff, he takes all of it, all the stuff that we'd rather shove away and ignore, all the things that we like and all the things that we don't like, and he brings them to completion. Four plus three is seven. He takes all of these events and he makes them beautiful by putting them together. He makes them whole and complete. Uh, Jesus uh, takes the good and the bad and the ugly of the unfinished story of the Old Testament, the unfinished quilt of all of human history, and he makes it complete whole and beautiful together. He takes the stuff that we would rather shove away and he finishes it. Matthew includes all of those people that you might not include, all of those events that you might not include, all of those failures and successes, and he completes them and makes them beautiful in him. And if you were an early reader of 
of this gospel, you would catch right away that the claim that Matthew is about to make about who Jesus is is bigger than any claim that anybody else had been making at this time. He's claiming that Jesus really is the end of the story, the culmination of everything. And that it's okay that that other stuff is in there too. Jesus fulfills it and completes it. I think we're all working on our own quilts in life. We want to celebrate and include the good stuff. And we want to stuff into the back of the closet the bad stuff. We, we celebrate the good things and we hide and hide even from ourselves the, the bad things. We move on from trouble, uh, even if it's illness or tragedy. We try and move past it as quickly as possible and shove it in a deep, dark corner so we never have to think about it again. We think that maybe if we take our, our sin, our trouble, our tragedies, our, our heartaches, our losses, and our failures, if we think that if we skip past those things as quickly as possible, that if we ignore them and just quickly move on from them, and, and if nobody ever finds out, um, maybe we can create a story that leaves out that bad stuff. We think maybe we'll be better off if we uh, write a story that leaves out that struggle that we have, that no one has to know and, and it won't matter. But Matthew reminds us that those things are just as much a part of us as the good stuff is. And that just like Jesus completes and fulfills the complicated, sinful, and tragic story of the Old Testament, that just like Jesus completes and fulfills the complicated and sinful, tragic story of the whole world, that Jesus can make something beautiful. If Jesus can make something beautiful out of the Old Testament, if he can make something beautiful out of our broken world, Matthew claims that he can make something beautiful about, out of us too. That he can use my sin and my failure and my weaknesses and my tragedies and my losses combined with all the amazing things that God has given me to make something beautiful. The surprising claim that Matthew is making here is that the stuff we want to hide, ignore, avoid, and censor in our lives really can be made beautiful by him if we let him. That that stuff doesn't have to be hidden and destroy us. That he really can take that and make something new out of it. And so the question is, and this is the question whenever we're reading the gospel, if this is the claim that Matthew is making, if this is the claim that God is making in his word, we, we can take it or leave it. We don't have to accept it uh, if, if you don't believe it. But, but if you do, um, will, we, will we let him take that stuff? Will we admit our sin and our failure and our weaknesses before God, before ourselves, and maybe even before others? Will we trust in Jesus for forgiveness, but also healing and restoration of those things? So that we don't have to pretend that we don't have them anymore. Will we allow the Holy Spirit to make us new? Um, one way of talking about this that, that I talk about sometimes is, is, will we be able to say, I need you, God. I need, I believe that you can change and transform and forgive me. And I turn to you to make me new. Because if we do, um, he'll take things that we couldn't possibly imagine having any positive impact on our future. He'll take things that we would very, very, very much rather have just never had happened at all. Things that we'd rather no one ever find out about, and he'll use them 
to help people, to heal people, to help us, to heal us, to change the world. He'll transform those things and make them beautiful. He'll take our worst stuff, our biggest shortcomings, our most tragic failures and use them to do amazing things in the lives of others. And we'll find that we don't have to hide from them anymore. As we uh, sing our, our last hymn today, as, as we have Thanksgiving this week and, and eat a big meal and hopefully sit around the table and everybody says something they're thankful for, whatever you guys do, as, as we sing this hymn, as we think about the people that have gone before, as we think about our quilts and our stories, I, I invite you to just listen this week to the, the voice of the Holy Spirit, to bring to mind the stuff that you've tried hard to forget to take uh, his advice in connecting with somebody that uh, is a safe person that might actually um, be willing to help you or care for you or encourage you with that thing that you've been hiding. Whatever it is, would you uh, ask God to bring that stuff to mind and offer it up before him? May God lead you in giving those things to him, in working on that sinful pattern, on reconciling with that enemy on being made new by the one who came to complete the work that God started with Abraham. Because we have a God that finishes what he starts. May we allow him to bring us to completion too. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we all have walked pathways we'd rather have never walked. We've all faced things we'd rather to have never faced. We've all done things that have hurt you and that have hurt others. And we wish we'd never done them. And there's this impulse, Lord, that we have to shove all those things in the deepest, darkest corners and cover them over with a nice layer of dirt and never think about them again. But Lord, those things are are a part of us our sin, our tragedy, our failure, our weakness. So we pray, Lord, that you would uh, lead us in giving those things to you. That you'd remind us that you came to live and die and rise so that our sin could be forgiven, our wounds could be healed, our relationships could be reconciled, our lives could be made new in you, not just now, but forever. So Lord, help us. Help us to remember that those things aren't disqualifying or destroying, but instead that you use all of those things to work in our lives. Help us to be honest with you and surrender them to you. Help us to be honest with ourselves and quit trying to hide them from ourselves and from you. Because God, you finish the story. So we pray, Lord, you lead and guide us as you continue uh, to work through your Holy Spirit in our lives. Lord, if we've never turned to you, help us to come to you and, and throw that sin on your shoulders and know that when we confess to you, you lift us up and make us new, that we can trust in you for this life and for life eternal. In your name, amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon podcast from Bethel Covenant Church. We're an evangelical covenant church outside Ellsworth, Wisconsin, and you can find out more about us at BethelCov.org.